The first reading is from 1 John, beginning with chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us all from unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, for the past three Sundays, we have been looking a bit more in depth at the sacraments, the, the means of grace. And today we finish up that series, though you'd be forgiven for wondering just what there's left to talk about. After all, we've already covered baptism and communion, as well as the liturgy, which holds these sacraments in place for us. So what else is there to talk about? Well, we're focused today on what can almost be called a third sacrament, and that is confession and absolution. So first, let me tell you just a little bit about the number of sacraments. You see, back in Luther's day, back in the, the 15th and 16th centuries, the official position of the church was that there were seven sacraments, and that it was through these seven actions in particular that people were filled with God's grace. Uh, this is still the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, by the way. The seven sacraments at Luther's time were recognized as baptism, confirmation, uh, Eucharist or communion, penance or confession, uh, anointing of the sick, which became known and associated with the last rites, uh, holy orders, which is taking vows to become a monk or a nun or a priest or a deacon, and matrimony or marriage. These seven events were understood to be the ways in which God infused us with grace, and therefore they were set aside as especially sacred and uh, came to be known as sacraments. Now, you've probably guessed that Luther and the other reformers didn't hold to this. While all seven of these actions still exist in the Lutheran church in one form or another, only two of them are what we call sacraments. For Martin Luther realized, or when he realized, that the center of Christianity was found not in us presenting our righteousness to God, but rather in God's promise of forgiveness in Christ, it led him to totally reevaluate everything he thought he knew about the church, including the sacraments. He began to reevaluate the seven sacraments according to Christ's promise looking to see which could actually be traced to Jesus, having both the promise of salvation and physical elements associated with them. Baptism and communion were easy. Uh, you had the words of Christ, go and make disciples, baptizing them, and uh, given and shed for you, along with the elements of water, wine, and bread. But what about the other five? confirmation, anointing of the sick, marriage, ordination, all of these things are good things, but there was no clear promise of salvation from Jesus attached to any of them. Penance, on the other hand, or what most people simply call confession, was a bit of a harder case. 
Certainly the form it took in Luther's day was problematic, but it was still at its core about the forgiveness of sins and therefore about salvation. And Jesus had very clearly told his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Now it's not clear maybe what the physical element would be. Is it the person that's uh, speaking the words of forgiveness? Is it the words themselves as they travel through the air out of the person's mouth? Not sure about that part. But regardless, confession and absolution was so important to Luther and so central to the gospel that he wrestled with it for quite a while. In fact, if uh, you open up Luther's small catechism, uh, if you pull yours out, you can see a bit how he struggles with it. Oh, did you not bring your catechisms with you? No. Well, you know what? If you open up your red hymnal to page 1160, way in the back, you'll find Luther's small catechism there. 1160, way in the back. And as certainly you're aware, the catechism, uh, way back on page 1160, uh, has four main sections and then an appendix that gives some prayers. And those four main sections are the law, the Ten Commandments, the gospel, the Apostles' Creed, prayer, which is the Lord's Prayer especially, and the sacraments. But if you look in that last section on the sacraments, uh, you'll see uh, several things. First off, you'll see baptism on page 1164. There's the sacrament of holy baptism. And on page 1166, you'll see the sacrament of the altar, that is communion. And that's what you'd expect. But right there, sandwiched in the middle, on page 1165, is this little section called How People Are to Be Taught to Confess. Even though confession didn't quite fit the definition of a sacrament that Luther was working with, he still needed to have an explanation of it in the section on the sacraments. While Luther keeps this practice as a central uh, uh, practice of the Christian faith, he doesn't leave it unchanged, however. And in fact, that change is clear right at the beginning of his uh, explanation here. So right there, it says, what is confession? And he says, confession consists of two parts. One is that we confess our sins. The other is that we receive the absolution. Well, that seems pretty simple. I mean, it's almost straight out of our reading today, right? If, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins. But this was a radical change from the practice of Luther's time. You see, by the time of Luther, confession or penance had been expanded into four distinct parts. And all of these parts were understood to be necessary for the forgiveness to be real, to be trusted. First, they said there had to be contrition, which meant you had to be sorry for your sin. You had to feel sorry, really sorry. Or at the very least, some said you had to wish you were sorry if you didn't actually feel sorry. You had to at least want to feel sorry for your sin. Second, then came the confession itself, where you had to list off all of the major sins that you had committed since the last time you had confessed. And then third was the absolution, when the priest uh, forgives you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And last was uh, satisfaction or penance, where you do some good works, uh, prayers or an offering or acts of service as a way of making up in a small way uh, for some of these sins that you've committed. Well, Luther saw that this form of confession, of penance as it was, put so much emphasis on the sinner that it almost lost the promise of forgiveness at its core. I mean, there were so many ways to doubt the promise. Were, were you really sorry for your sins? Did you really have contrition? 
Or were you just afraid of being punished? And how could you know? What if you forgot some sins? Would, would God punish you for those ones? And what about that part at the end, penance, which the whole sacrament is named for? How could you be sure you had done enough or that you had done it rightly? No. The emphasis, the center of confession and absolution has to be the promise of God to forgive. Otherwise, there is no lasting comfort in it. So contrition, feeling sorry for sin, and satisfaction, making up for it in a small way, while perhaps useful ideas cannot be understood as necessary for the forgiveness to be trusted. They made a few other changes as well. Uh, Luther and his colleagues were adamant that confession and absolution must always be a matter of freedom and forgiveness, and so they refused to make it a law or a requirement for Christians to make use of it once a year, as it had been uh, before. And finally, they recognized the impossibility of anyone completely confessing every sin they had committed, and they maintained that private confession was especially and particularly for those sins which trouble a person. You see that right in his explanation there in the small catechism. You see, this is why we have this gift from God in confession. Not as a legal requirement to check off the boxes, making sure that we've gotten enough grace to outweigh our sin, but rather in order to give us the help we need when sin takes hold of the conscience and keeps you up at night. Confession and absolution is not for us to think we've earned forgiveness, but rather to bring forgiveness to us. It's not given as an additional step to make us really repent, but so that God can make the forgiveness real in the spoken word of one Christian to another, delivering the, again the word of promise that makes us new in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sin. Confession and absolution is not for God's sake, it's for ours. Because we are not strong enough to believe as we ought. We do not have the faith to trust in God as we ought. So that even though we can confess to God silently and the promised forgiveness is there, it's just hard to believe that God forgives when all your ears take in is silence in return. Perhaps the exceptionally strong in faith can pray for forgiveness and read the promise from our first John reading and trust completely with a whole heart that God has forgiven them. But for the rest of us, for you and for me, actually hearing the words of forgiveness from the person who has just heard your sin makes all the difference. I don't know if you've experienced this personally, I, but it's hard to put into words what that difference is like, how much of a difference it makes. By confessing and naming the sin that hounds you, the things you've done or failed to do, the addictions that control you, the fears and doubts that assail you, the shame that cripples you, by confessing and naming it before another, it becomes real in an undeniable way. And then, in the hearing of God's promise of forgiveness spoken to you, not just as a nice idea for you to remember, but as a word for you to hear, the forgiveness becomes even more real than the sin, driving it out and bringing, maybe for the first time, the peace that passes all understanding. 
I can't tell you how many times I've spoken the words of absolution to someone and seen their shoulders drop as the tension goes away. Sometimes this even happens to people who didn't realize that they had come to make a confession. And I'm not sure if I can describe for you the feeling of being on the other side, of sharing that deep, dark secret I'm ashamed of, something that feels too big to directly address, and suddenly having God wipe it away through the words of another sinner. So that even though the thing remains, I suddenly find the freedom to address it and work on it, or simply to leave it behind. Though the thing remains, whatever it is, the sting and the shame of it are taken away, and the power that it held is extinguished, and I find myself free even in the midst of my weakness. Now, my guess is that many of you, maybe most of you, have not experienced confession in this particular way. Sadly, though it was a central tenet of, uh, and part of Luther's faith, private confession and absolution has been largely neglected by us Lutherans. Though we've been given this tremendous gift, very few of us make use of it, and even fewer do it regularly. After all, the culture increasingly tells us there's no such thing as sin. And when we hear someone make a confession, and people do it all the time when you have the ears to listen for it, our inclination is not to absolve them, but to excuse them. We hear someone close to us say that they feel bad for something they said or did, and rather than forgiving them in Jesus' name, using the keys of the kingdom to unlock them from their burden, we tell them, well, that's not so bad. Or, you know, you've been going through a lot lately. Or, you know, really that other person deserved it. And in doing so, we leave their sin right on them, not letting it be real and addressing it with real forgiveness, but playing make-believe, pretending it isn't there saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so, sisters and brothers, what I want for you is to no longer be excusers, but forgivers. What I want for you is to no longer play the game of trying to justify the guilt and shame of others with excuses, helping them cover up and hold on to their sin, but to be the mouth of God, delivering the promise, which does away with sin to speak straight into the darkness which troubles their heart with the words of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away, not covers up, the sin of the world. And to not be content for yourself with merely the idea of forgiveness for your own sin, the guilt and shame which keeps you up at night, but to confess it to another, whether me or, or someone else, and to hear that response the sweet forgiveness of God given to you. For as our psalm says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. But when I acknowledged my sin, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so now, fellow priests of God, I'm going to ask you to practice by finishing my sermon for me. I'm going to have you turn to someone or someones near you and say to each other one at a time, In the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sin. And you know that as you speak these words, it's not simply you who speak, but Jesus Christ who speaks through you. And also know that as you hear these words, it is not simply your brother or sister who speaks, but Jesus Christ speaking to you. So go ahead 
Turn to each other and deliver this promise. In the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sin. And don't forget to respond with a hearty amen when you hear it. All right, go ahead. Go and uh, finish my sermon for me. Amen? Amen. Amen.